0: What would horse racing be like without betting? Are we almost at the point of finding out? Plus, it's never too early to start identifying the key early contenders for the Kentucky Derby. We'll set the table for the first time in 2020 on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. Play roll And they're
1: off. As they move to the top of the stretch. Victor hit the
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. And while you're at it, how about adding the at ABR handle to your notes? Maybe that'll get those Mensa members at America's Best Racing to realize we're out here. Thanks for your support. I'm guessing here, but when the ancient Greek Olympians ran chariot races and mounted horse races 2,000 years ago, those people were probably not concerned with funding purses using casino money. When Queen Anne in the U.K. developed Ascot Racecourse in the 1700s, which basically turned horse racing into a professional sport, she could never have dreamed that horse racing administrators would stop caring about gambling on races. But that's exactly what a recent commentary from the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation suggested, that those in charge of horse racing really don't care about the horse player as evidenced by making them pay for the data necessary to make informed bets. It's a subject we've discussed before on this show. The article goes on to say that rather than making the horse racing experience attractive to the player, those in charge are more worried about funding the industry, that is, supplementing race purses, by making deals with casinos for a percentage of the profits. That, too, is a subject we've discussed before on this show. The question is... Is it even possible to make horse racing what you would call a self-sustaining sport, where gambling dollars from its own constituency could make the need for casino revenue unnecessary, as the article suggests? For some perspective on that issue, we welcome in for the first time to in the gate Marshall Graham, a professor at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Professor Graham teaches economics, but he also finished 9th at last year's National Handicapping Challenge in Las Vegas, so he knows a thing or two about betting on horses. And we welcome Professor Marshall Graham for the first time here to win the gate. He's basically our own Chris Velika, the bear, with a doctorate degree. As you put on both of your hats, someone with a keen understanding of what drives the economic engines of businesses, as well as someone who gambles quite a bit on the ponies, what do you think about the way data is distributed in horse racing?
2: Well, I I think it's a a major problem. I think if you look at other sports, the rise of analytics has led to lots of resources, a lot of data resources that have made people understand the games of basketball, baseball, and football at much higher levels than they did a decade or two ago. And especially with the rise of uh, sports betting, people are able to use these data sets and apply any outcomes they get to betting and increasing the uh, handle for, uh, for betting on those particular sports. And in, in horse racing, our data is, is costly to acquire and building any sort of significant data set is very hard to do. It is not free. And the data is very messy to work with. So I think it's an impediment. A lot of our up and coming horse players are people who have backgrounds in programming and who are more used to working with bigger data sets. I taught a class last spring, the economics of racetrack wagering markets. I'm a college professor. I teach at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. So I taught this economics elective where we looked at wagering markets. Really, it was, a, it was how to bet the horses. Uh, and and I applied some to economics too. But um, there are 40 students enrolled, and half of them have a programming background. And so I had students who, of course, We're interested in horse racing, but, you know, the the data was so inaccessible that uh, I had a handful of students who started uh, modeling golf because the data was was more available. And with, again, the rise in sports betting, these are potential players who are drifting away because of the complications involved in acquiring data, data.
0: Well, I'll get back to that in one second. But in layman's terms, what made you decide to use horse racing data as part of one of your courses of study?
2: Well, there's a lot that's taught in colleges now, and I thought it was a great way to, in part, show them what I do, right? Uh, I have over a dozen academic publications that uh, are related to betting markets and horse racing to hopefully uh, teach them some economics and statistics and probability theory through horse racing. And then also, you know, I think it is an avid intellectual pursuit to try to to find value in analyzing horse race. So I think there's importance to that, that they might apply uh, in a future job as a financial analyst. And I think there are a lot of lessons to learn in decision-making, in behavioral economics. And so I've taught the course twice now. I had 35 students when I taught in the spring of 17, and I had 40 students when I taught in the spring of 2019. And uh, Rhodes is a little liberal arts college, has about 2,100 students. And uh, it was one of the biggest classes at Rhodes. So I'm very proud of that and they had a, a lot of fun teaching it.
0: I want to get back to what you were saying before about sports betting. You know, with the PASPA Act struck down last year, the thought was that perhaps these businesses that offer wagering on both horses and stick and ball sports would get more people at least curious about horse racing as something else on which to bet and create a bit of crossover. What sense do you get about how that's going?
2: Well, it's hard to tell. I I think the the recent betting data is a concern. I mean, we don't know how much betting fell as a result of competition with sports betting or betting fell because we'd had this sort of incremental bump due to the tax law changes in terms of withholding that it boosted handle over the last couple of years. I think what's most alarming is that, you know, we're now, if you look back to sort of the high point in 2002 handle it down by a a tremendous amount and the rise of sports betting offers a much lower cost alternative with a lot more free data with a lot of you know really good uh, free resources a lot of you know there are a lot of podcasts and analyses of different games that people might bet on that are available for free build data sets not only to help your fantasy football team, but also to analyze NFL games. And so I think that's a growing concern. So I think potentially there are some benefits to the legalization of sports betting, but as long as we price our product significantly higher than uh, what someone pays to bet a sporting event, then I I think that that we'll be at a big competitive disadvantage. And I think we'll lose players. Uh, 18, 20, 22% takeout rates are very hard to overcome. They're very hard to have winning players, even the illusion of winning. And uh, I think that's a that's a big problem for our ecosystem to bring new players in and to sustain our current, currently playing players who uh, you know might drift elsewhere. I think that that you know we need to reduce the takeout. And we need to figure out ways to uh, mitigate the falling field sizes also hurts horse players because it it makes it harder to find value. You can't find value, you don't bet. I
0: want to get back to the data issue. The Thoroughbred Idea Foundation article that I referenced before phrased the situation in a way I hadn't considered before. The author Craig Bernick said, and I quote, despite their massive contribution to racing, horse owners are required to relinquish any rights to data, even for their own horses, from the moment a horse is registered with the jockey club. How do you feel about that?
2: Well, I have no problem with it. As a horse owner, and, and I own a substantial number of horses too, I feel that, uh, you know, it's a sporting event and that the data ought to be publicly accessible. If you're uh, in basketball or, or football or college and pro sports, box scores are accessible uh, and even put in format that people can work with. And so what I think is important here is the Jockey Club says that, and the Jockey Club controls all the data through Equibase. And while I can look up historical charts and pull them up in PDF form, the ability to make a comprehensive data set is, is more complicated than that. And so I think that's an area that would help potential new horse players, like building racing statistics is very hard to do right? We basically have to work with the generated statistics that come from Equibase. If I wanted to break down a trainer's statistics, I either have to buy some pre, pre-package, like Stats Race Lens, which the Jockey Club itself, through Equibase, owns and markets, um, or I have to buy the original data. I think that hinders the growth of our sport. All of this is occurring at a time where persons are increasing and increasing dramatically. I mean, the one thing that is true is the re- relationship or the ratio of persons to handle Purses are now 10.6% of handle, which from what I can tell is an all time high, right? So despite the fact of all the concerns we hear about betting and the fall in overall handle, purses as a percentage of handle have never been bigger. And so um, we're starting to get a disconnect between purses that uh, horses earn when they win a race and the amount that people are betting on horses. And, if, and that money is coming from alternative sources like historical racing or slot machines or racinos, and it's just not sustainable.
0: Professor Marshall Graham of Rhodes College in Memphis joining us here on In The Gate. I mean, as you know infinitely better than I, trickle-down economics refers to cutting taxes on businesses to stimulate investment in the short term, which would benefit all levels of society in the long term. Now, the article I've been referring to says that trickle-down economics in horse racing has not worked that boosting purses with casino money, alternate revenue sources, as you say, has not created more horse players or horse owner participation. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I think it's, it's very much true. I think if we think about um, the breeding part of the game, breeders should respond to these increased purses by breeding more horses. But I think it's clear to breeders who make a three-, four-, five-year commitment in breeding a horse that it's unclear what the future of the industry will be. So a lot of these purse supplements may be temporary. The ones in Texas, other states, uh, which at least for now, have good purses. They might look to see what happened in West Virginia, right? West Virginia got racinos, got slot machine subsidies, purses increased, and then the state eventually just clawed that back. The battle over the greyhound tracks in Florida, you know, part of it was animal rights related, but a lot of it was decline in the popularity of greyhound racing. And so uh, you basically had the track owners align themselves with the animal activists to end greyhound racing. But if greyhound racing had fans and had bettors, it might have had a better chance of surviving. But by the end, it was being subsidized uh, because they it, it had very, very few uh, dog players anymore and I'm, I'm just afraid that if that's the direction we go with horse players then our sport's in real trouble i mean we're nowhere near when dog racing was banned in florida um but um you know the decline in handle the, the constant decline in handle over the last 15 years uh, and the growing purses just creates this disconnect leaders in the sport don't realize the problems facing racing directly related to horse players and horse fans
0: now as you mentioned you're also a thoroughbred owner do you find yourself looking differently at the industry when it comes to say purses and data like we've been talking about do you find yourself looking differently at the industry when you wear your professor hat versus your owner hat
2: well there, there's no doubt as a horse owner I'd love to be in a two or three horse race but i, I you know I approach things more as what is, what is best for the horse player? And so as a horse player, I respond to incentives. If there's no value in the pools, I don't bet. I bet races with full fields. You know, I bet races where I think I can create value or where I'm particularly, you know, have particular skills that, that maybe fit, you know, particular field that fits my skill set better, a particular type of race. And I'm finding less and less of those opportunities, especially with the drop in field size. The horse owner, I also respond to incentives. And, and right now, purses are really good. And so it's a great time to claim horses. And it's a great time to run horses and chase purses uh, where the purses are strong. But there's a real disconnect there, right? It, it, it should be that, that there should be an alignment of the two. But, um, you know, the fact is it's a good time to be a horse owner. And it's not a good time to be a horse player. And I came to this game. I came to ownership as a horse player. Uh I believe and think of myself as a horse player before I do it before a horse owner and um I'm much more uh bearish on the future of racing um from the horse player perspective. And I think that ultimately if we, you know, run out of horse players, that the ownership thing will follow, right? That what we're seeing with the purses, 10.6% of the purses uh, um, as a uh, 10.6% of the handle is is, uh, representing purses Uh, in 1970. That was 4.2%. Even in 2003 uh, was 7%. Right. So I think that that's disturbing, right. That all of these alternative ways to fund the purses at some point will come to an end. If we can't generate handle.
0: Is it possible then as the thoroughbred idea foundation article has suggested to create an economic model for horse racing where casino supplements are not necessary, that racetrack gambling dollars can sustain the industry.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's important that it happens. I think it's important for the industry to really focus on making the game attractive to players, right? That we're now in a competitive landscape. We've been in a competitive landscape for the past 40 years with the proliferation of casinos, but now more than ever, right, with competition of sports betting, competition in casinos, that we need to figure out how to market our product, we need to figure out how to attract bettors, we need to turn small bettors into big bettors, and we need to, to turn casual fans into horse players. And, you know, whether or not it's possible, we have to try, and we have to try creative ways to do so, because I believe this will ultimately be our sports demise, right? If we don't have horse players then we're not going to have horse races and there'll be dramatic contraction in the industry. So, you know, I think the first place to start is trying to figure out how to reduce takeout, how to make our game more competitive from a betting standpoint. If we reduce takeout, increase churn, increase interest in the sport, uh, create a better ecosystem where there are winners, where it does create a probability of winning on a given day, I think if we do things like eliminate breakage, which is the rounding of, on bets, it can have a dramatic effect. The difference between a show bet paying $2.99 for a $2 bet versus $2.80 is 19 cents per $2. That can be dramatic because people make show bets for large amounts of money. And so by eliminating breakage, we can bring people back into the place and show pool. So, you know, I'm looking for racetracks in the industry, to try to be more creative about trying to attract fans. Certainly, reducing takeout would help. Certainly, eliminating breakage would help. But there are other things tracks can do. And it's a matter of experimentation. And right now, we just don't see a lot of experimentation.
0: Professor Marshall Graham is an economics professor and a horse player at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you so much for your perspective, Professor.
2: Thank you for having me on. I very much appreciate it.
0: Have we seen yet on the track the winner of this year's Kentucky Derby? When it came to justify two years ago at this time, the answer was no. We'll check out the emerging players so far when the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. I'm guessing you've heard of the Kentucky Derby. It's this race that's run usually early in May. We haven't yet talked about the Kentucky Derby this year, but that's about to change as we're finally starting to get into the rounds of prep races that will winnow the field down to 20 for the Run for the Roses on May the 2nd. So to help us do that, we bring in a voice we haven't heard on this show for too long, and that's Jonathan Littner, who writes for Horse Racing Nation. Welcome back, Jonathan. So before we get into a few specific horses, who's impressed you the most so far on the Triple Crown Trail?
1: Well, I think Dennis's moment has to start the list. Dennis's moment strikes the lead right at the top of the stretch and builds a two length lead. Now a three length lead for the final furlong. Dennis's moment with a five length lead scabbard with clear sailing up into second. But Dennis's moment kicks off the road of the Kentucky Derby in a big way. He barely moved a muscle. We, we have at course racing a user generated Kentucky Derby contender rankings and despite his trouble that he's experienced in his career, Dennis's moment has not left that number one spot. You're talking about a grade three winner who was going to be the favorite, the breeders cup juvenile stumbles out of the gate. You know, he could be undefeated. If you look back at his debut, he lost his jockey. It was really no fault of his own. So he has the two losses and, and between them, he sandwiched two really, really nice looking victories and including his debut at Ellis park. that he won by like 19 and a quarter lengths. I think it was. So, a lot of potential there and and he's one that I feel like every once in a while you hear about a, a derby prospect before they make their debut and then we kind of latch on to them. I want to say it was probably Roadster last year because Baffert said he could be, you know, his next Justifier American Pharaoh and obviously it didn't work out there, but Dale Romans has talked up Dennis's moment since before he ran a race and so we're we're kind of going through the same thing here. Um, as far as a couple of other runners, A Rings also out of the Breeders Cup Juvenile, he's a really interesting one. Didn't really run his race, you know, the last time we saw him. But I think the way he's going to be handled this season, you have to keep paying attention. Trained by Bob Baffert, he's going to run him in the Rebel at Oaklawn, and then the Arkansas Derby potentially there as well. And then another one that, you know, kind of on the fence about, but, you know, he's got a lot of talent is Maxfield. Scratch from the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, he had a little bit of an issue there. It turns out we found out, uh, you know, a couple weeks after that, that he had had a minor surgery for a bone chip.
0: But he's not even in serious training now.
1: Well, he's 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 apparently galloping, uh, no works yet. And so I think they'll have to do the two prep kind of schedule where you hope to get a race out of him and then you have a, a more serious race, which I would expect to be something like the Bluegrass Stakes if everything works out well. And he's undeniable talent, and I think he's going to win a major race somewhere down the road. I just don't know if it's going to be the Kentucky Derby. And then the other one I feel like that's gotten all the conversation is Independence Hall.
0: And Independence Hall now makes his move. Independence Hall is the leader, getting away to lead by two. Prince of Pharaohs has moved up. And on the outside, it's Bourbon Bay. Independence Hall by a length and a half as they come for the quarter pole. Prince of Pharaohs on the outside, Bourbon Bay. It is Independence Hall with the lead. And now a furlong to the finish. Jose Ortiz showing him the whip. Now goes to work on Independence Hall who has a three-length lead. Just a 16th to the finish. And it's the Constitution Colt Independence Hall to win the Jerome. Won it by four lengths.
1: Won the national Stakes by open lengths, came back and won the Jerome. It was a little more workmanlike, but he's going to go into the new year here as another one of the favorites. And if I could talk about one more that has sort of attracted my attention a little bit, it's this ancient warrior horse. I don't know what his path is going to look like. He's uh, Jerry Hollender for trainee. And if you followed racing at all the last year or so, you'll know that he's sort of become embattled banned from the stronic groups tracks out in California um, but I, of all these horses that have won maiden races and we'll be going to the stakes. I want to watch that one closely. He's moved him over to Oakland park. We should see him in an allowance race, uh, coming up at, at the beginning of February. And then from then on, he should be on the Derby trail. So that's one that, that I definitely want to see more of.
0: Well, you mentioned Bob Baffert and it's tough to talk about the Kentucky Derby trail without Bob Baffert. And he has a lot more than the one you mentioned. There's thousand mm-hmm. words who ran a big race in the Los Al Futurity. I'm a Roger Federer fan, but you have to give it up for Nadal, who is also a Baffert trainee who looked really, really good. So, I mean, you know, Bob Baffert certainly knows how to get horses to the Derby. I mean, how many of these prospects of his do you think are going to pan out?
1: I see a path for all of them to be honest, you know and and we also you know, haven't mentioned authentic
0: it's still authentic coming to the three eighth pole. He's been in control throughout, leads by a length and a half to uncaptured hero. It's all authentic as they pass the quarter pole and turn for home. authentic in complete command, turning it on. He's in front by six with a furlong left to go. Zimba warrior and Azul Coast as authentic is putting on a show here. he's a little green. Shifting about, but long gone. Authentic strolls home in the sham. He'll win by about eight lengths.
1: Greenest grass in the stretch and and just kept going there. And another extremely impressive horse, Nadal. I I wonder about him a little bit. You know, we've only seen him one time on Sunday in that six and a half for a long race. He he looked like a Dortmund. You know, if you go back to 2015, just a big horse that wasn't extremely fast out of the gate. But once he got in the stride, he went straight to the pace and, and never really let up there. Yeah, it's not really the kind of horse you want to win the Derby, but I think he could get to the Derby. And then Thousand Words certainly has every reason to move forward off of his last race. Uh, I think they had probably a little bit too much blinker on him, and he ended up going head to head with that a No Door that ran in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile on the second. I think it sort of legitimized both of those horses that they ran so closely in the Futurity. But I, I think Thousand Words is probably at least a couple lengths better than than a No Door. He just probably didn't see him in the stretch until. Flavian and Pratt kind of guided him out. And it's like, oh, with the blinker, that the horse realized he had something to run against and went on. So I guess when you talk about horses that uh, I'm looking at in the new year, a thousand words is definitely on that short
0: list, too. Jonathan Littner of Horse Racing Nation is with us here on In the Gate. We've talked a little bit about the Breeders' Cub Juvenile, which was a topsy-turvy race. You had three big horses that we've mentioned who all had their problems that day. We haven't talked about the horse who won it. Storm the court for trainer peter Urton, and that would be a very popular win in the racing business as you know what chance do you give storm the court to back up what he did in the juvenile
1: oh probably not much not a lot of black type in the family i'm not sure if there's any black type in the family i'd agree wise and then you know he was obviously the beneficiary of other horses stumbles in that race um you know he, he goes gate to wire was not really pressed a whole lot and at the same time, you know, they, they I think they took the blinker, they put the blinkers on him. I'm sorry. And I, I'm not a fan of having to put blinkers on a horse at that point in their career. I feel like you should be taking them off so that they can relax and prepare to go a little bit longer. I think that race and the circumstances just all came together for Storm the Court and allowed him to upset that race at 45 to 1, whatever he ended up that day. I'm sort of in agreement, I think, with everybody else that the, the better Derby Derby prospect was no Odoor and second in that race going forward.
0: A couple others I want to mention because these races have just happened. Enforcible for Mark Cassie, who is not missed a beat after his son Norm went out on his own. He had been his father's chief assistant, and Enforcible looked really good winning the LeCompte, though we haven't seen too many LeCompte winners go on to run well in the Kentucky Derby. Where do you put him? He is a tappet colt out of a Dixie Union mare, so the breeding is good.
1: I put him at really high on my list as far as horses that I think will be in the Derby, but I would not put him on my list of horses that I think can win the Derby. And and I say that because of his running style. You know, if we go back to, to almost every year that the point system has been in effect and, and obviously gets rid of those pure sprinters, it's the horses that can put themselves near the front at the beginning of the race and keep that pace up and never be caught by closers that tend to win the derby. Enforceable is one of those closers. It's inevitable that he's going to run into traffic problems. You know, I almost hope he sneaks into the derby and everybody overlooks him because I feel like he's the kind of horse that could clunk up into the Superfecta. That's probably going to be a, a really common line of thought, though. I mean, I'm <laughs> thinking a few months out, but uh, the Superfecta, you know, in the era of of favorites winning the Derby is as remained because of it's pretty high minimum, a, a really profitable wager for people nonetheless. So yeah, for me he's a super effective player. I I think he's gonna be okay as the distances get longer. Obviously as a full brother to Mohamed and a half to New Year's Day. There's a, a lot there in the pedigree. Just really impressive on paper. And it was good to see him run as well as he did. You know, he he broke his maiden at nine furlongs last summer at Saratoga and it looked like okay here's a a real two year old and I, I, you know, he ran into going a little bit shorter in the Breeders' Futurity at Keeneland and Maxfield. I think those two things came together and got him beat, but he's definitely a better horse than he showed that day and it was good to see him back it up and
0: comp. And speaking of Saratoga, I want to just hit you with one more and that's Basin for Steve Asmussen who hasn't been seen since the fall and he's not supposed to run until that same Rebel Stakes at Oaklawn that you mentioned back in March. He is a son of Liam's Map. We don't know how far Liam's Map's progeny want to go. He won the dirt mile. But Basin looked really good winning the hopeful stakes. How do you think that horse is going to make it on two starts? I
1: don't see that panning out very well. I think he's a good horse. But when you talk about the path that eight rings has taken, he's just got a lot more foundation. He's gone two turns twice. Basin hasn't gone any farther than the seven furlongs. And he's... He also ran over the the sloppy track and the hopeful, which I think was a big benefit for him. You know, horses that that put in such performances like that, I, I just feel like they tend to back up the next time they're over a fast track. And, and you know, I think everything's going according to plan. It's just you'd have to be asking for him to be a really super talent to basically qualify to the Arkansas Derby. I, I think the Rebel's going to be a throwaway. It's going to be a really deep field, and he'll you will run somewhere in mid-pack, and then he's going to have to finish first or second in the Arkansas Derby, and that's just a big ask for a horse.
0: Now, here's the question. In all of what we've just talked about, have we mentioned the winner of the Kentucky Derby, or has the winner of the Kentucky Derby even gone to the post yet? That's what we're still here to determine, but thank you so much for setting the table for us, Jonathan. It feels so good to be talking Derby again.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. It's a fun time of year. There's you know, so many names involved. And, yeah, we could probably talk for 20 more minutes about all these different horses. And, and I think we've seen the, the Derby winner run at least once. I, I don't know that uh, we did mention him, though, it's, <laughs> in this era and uh, how wild things have gotten.
0: Our thanks once again to Jonathan Lindner and to Marshall Graham. It doesn't matter on which side of the gun debate you fall or abortion rights or whether you like Trump. There are always people you can join in the name of activism who are trying to get their cause over the hump. But when it comes to horse racing, you see the protests happen by those who want to see the sport shut down. They scream and shout and wring their hands, and because they keep appearing, they seem to be experts of some renown. But where is the concerted voice to speak on behalf of racing to answer these exaggerated threats? To ask what credibility PETA has when one of its endgames would do away with cats and dogs as pets. The racing game is a punching bag that keeps on taking jabs from every side with virtually no defense. But without a centralized structure in this sport, where is the effort to counter the bluster with answers that make sense? You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and, of course, in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. And while you're at it, how about letting the folks at ABR... Oh, whatever. We'll do it another time. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.